0: Hello everybody, and welcome back. i to another episode of the Elsewhere Podcast. My name is Ian Ditchburn. Now, it has been quite some time since our last episode. There's a few reasons for that, not least of which is the the great plague of 2020, which has sort of limited my ability to conduct interviews in person. But in the meantime, uh, some of you may have listened to my side project, Pylon Radio, which airs on Vancouver Co-op Radio every Thursday at 11 a.m. And it's been more of a casual space for me and a few friends to talk about what's going on in our lives and the world around us. Generally a lot more casual than the stuff you've heard on elsewhere, but if you've been wondering what I'm doing that's where I've been. If you want to check out the back catalog of Pylon Radio, I would encourage you to go to my website, eastvandelsewhere.com, and I think I've got about 20 episodes up, so plenty to listen to if you so choose. Next, you may have noticed that we have new theme music. That is because I was so happy ...with the theme music from Pylon Radio... ...that I decided to hire the same guy to make a new theme for us here. His name is Dylan McNulty... ...and you can find him on SoundCloud as Maguire. I'll be sure to leave a link to his page... ...probably on the landing page for this episode... ...at eastvandelsewhere.com ...and it was just his birthday the other day... ...so big shout out to Dylan. Now, to bring it to today's guest... ...I first met Matthew Jefferson at the High Montreal Hostel back in 2019 in the middle of a 8,000 kilometer walk he was taking from one end of Canada to the other with his aunt's missing poster strapped to his backpack. Matthew is a perfect example of the driven people that you tend to meet traveling. And as you'll hear, He has an incredible life story, even outside of the Walk to Remember, as he calls it. Matthew grew up in Huntsville, Ontario, biracial with an indigenous mother and a white New Zealander father. And a large part of our discussion focuses on his sort of being caught between two worlds. In 2017, His Aunt Frances Brown disappeared on the infamous Highway of Tears in northern BC, which is what prompted him to begin his walk to remember. And while crossing the country, has made him this sort of nexus point between a lot of different indigenous communities with a specific focus on missing and murdered indigenous women. And this past summer, I was honored with a chance to come up and visit him. at his home, Woodset B.C. And, yeah, we camped together for three days. Really got the chance to get to know each other. And, honestly, we could have done a podcast every single night. Matthew was very generous with his time. And I'm extremely grateful for the time we got to spend together. I am going to play us in today with some music, which... Matthew showed me when we sat around the campfire. They are a collective known as Noe Janan, which translates to, we live here, we belong here. And basically they go around to different indigenous communities and collect poetry samples from local young people there. And then they mix them and turn them into really incredible songs. This one is the first track off the 2017 album The Silent War, and it's called Home to Me, featuring voices from the Grassy Narrows First Nation.
1: home to discover.
0: Point like the fastest arrow, bring hope to the people of grassy narrows. One piece in the land can't go back to battles. It's fire and action, casting shadows from old to the new. Let us show you the truth. Light up the pastors a glow in the youth. Bridge you to the world. This is where we live, so let the journey begin.
1: Good day.
0: reaching you today from a campground table in Wetset, B.C., where I've spent the last few days getting to know my guest slash host, Mr. Matthew Jefferson. Uh, Matthew, maybe you could start off with letting us know
2: um, your connection to this place. All right. Um, Which is in my language, which is with First Nations, which means hello, how are you? Um, My name is Matthew Jefferson. I am Laksiliou, First Nations from Whitset, British Columbia. Uh, My connection here is this is my ancestral homeland. And it's become pretty clear in the last few Mm -hmm. days how much you you love it here, Mm -hmm. but you didn't grow up here, correct? Where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Orillia, Ontario, and I was raised in Huntsville, Ontario. I grew up off reserve on account of the Indian Act at the time. Uh, My parents were married in 1979. And under the Indian Act of the time, my mother lost her status, and uh, we moved to. They moved to Ontario, and that's where I was born and raised. Yeah,
0: talking about that sort of legal system regarding your mother. Do you have any beliefs as to why the government implemented those laws?
2: Yes. Um, so the laws were implemented to enforce and force the patriarchy of the colonial systems on indigenous peoples here in Turtle Island which is what we now call North and South America.
0: What was it like growing up in Huntsville away from your language and your elders and traditions?
2: You know growing up it was a a difficult time I grew up in the 90s I was born in 1986 there wasn't a lot of acceptance of difference so I always knew that I was different Um, you know I'd see my mom who is visibly indigenous, my sister, whom is also visibly indigenous, and then there was me, who isn't. I was confronted with many scenarios in which I had to adapt and learn to survive, um, through bullying at school, not being accepted into communities or sports, uh, due to my lineage, just overall name-calling, defending my sister, who is more visibly indigenous than I, Lots of school fights.
0: How did that shape your feeling around your identity?
2: I used to see myself as someone who didn't belong anywhere. You know, being so far away from my ancestral lands and my mother's family, you know, when I grew up, when I was born, I wasn't dark enough for my mother's family and I wasn't white enough for the white kids, so I didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere. And with that solitude... I was forced to confront the inexplicable difference between me and them. And it was a necessary journey for me, being a half-breed, or as some call a nito, which is non-native, or higher up in some translations. So I had to adapt and learn what it meant to be like and what it looked like to live in this in-between, you know, trying to find that inner strength that I needed to convey messages to non-natives and reserve my indigeneity to my own family to hopefully garner that acceptance that I so longed for all of my life what were some of the ways which you adapted a lot of the ways that I had to adapt was to understand that not everybody is going to accept me not my own family not society and I had to find in a, my own personal strength from within by sitting with self and really learning to persevere through that struggle in most cases alone um, or with just my family my mother, my sister, and my father. And we were a very tight-knit group. And ways that I had to adapt was really to understand that no white person is going to understand my culture unless I learn my culture and explain it to them. And no Native family member is going to understand the Western world unless they hear it from me. So really being that bridge between the two, I do wholeheartedly believe that Creator made me the way I am so that I could be that bridge. And how did you end up back in Witsad? So recently my grandmother, Irene Z. Brown, passed away. A very strong matriarch, a language carrier She was a wing chief, she held the chief name, and she garnered over the decades so much respect in and outside of our community through her resilience, kind-heartedness, and when she passed my mother and I flew back so that we could be with her and our family through this difficult time and this difficult loss because with her we lost a huge part of our history. Maybe you could explain a little bit about
0: the nature of the matriarchal society, which you're talking about.
2: Yeah, so within our community here in Whitset, formerly known as Morristown, um, we are a matriarchal and matrilinical society, which means our power and our lineage flows through our women, our life carriers, our life bringers, and our water carriers. So in a patriarchal society, the power and the name would run through the men. That's not the case here within our territory. We are a matrilinical society because my mother is from here. My mother clan is Laksilu, which is Little Frog. I am of Caribou clan. Because my father is non-indigenous, my father clan is Laksamasyu, which is the fireweed, otherwise depicted as the killer whale. So the way matriarchs work here is they have the power. They can give and take away power. Our chief names are given by our matriarchs and they can be taken away by our matriarchs. If a chief is not Conducting themselves in a way that's conducive to the betterment of our people
0: So the matriarchs you're speaking of those would be the hereditary chiefs as opposed to the elected chiefs
2: no our matriarchs are only women Hmm. That have garnered enough respect and hold chief names within our communities our hereditary chiefs are the five houses Hmm. that oversee our 13 clans Now, normally those names would go through the hereditary line within the family, but if there is no heir to that name or no suitable heir within that time period, it can be held by a different clan momentarily until someone comes of age uh, to hold that name.
0: Um, What were some differences you noticed between life on and off reserve?
2: Off-reserve, you know very quickly where you sit. Um, You know very quickly that you are born at a disadvantage as an Indigenous person, that your truth is less important, that your narrative is less important, and what happens to you is less important. Here on the reserve, life is a constant struggle. It's no longer, I'm going to be part of chief and council so that I can better my community. It's more greed-driven, where people are vying for power any way they can. They're vying for money and greed any way they can, even at the detriment of their own people at times. And that's not just here. This is nationwide. Yeah. Do you believe that that has something to do with the
0: implementation of the elected structure as opposed to the hereditary structure? What are some of the issues surrounding that?
2: Yeah, so historically speaking, we didn't have elected chiefs or council members. That was implemented uh, through colonial expansion when they wanted to implement somebody they could control within our societies. So the very fact that we as indigenous people have elected chief and council members, it's not ours. Um, so, sorry, could you repeat the question?
0: Yeah, sure. What are some of the issues do you think surrounding this corruption mm-hmm. and you know just ineffectiveness of mm-hmm. leaders on reserve? And mm-hmm. what do you think some of the
2: solutions could be? Okay. So within our system that we have today with elected chiefs and council members and so many hands in the pot. Um, So many opinions, so many people wanting to vie for, you know, a better house, a better car, um, personal finance. It's distracted from what really counts within our communities, and that's the betterment of our communities. Um, Our youth outreach programs are less funded now because money's being taken away from them so that other people can benefit. We used to take care of expecting mothers a lot more than we do now. We used to take care of mothers with children a lot more than we do now. We used to have better access to health care than we do now. And a huge change that could greatly benefit our community is to reallocate that power back where it belongs and that's with our matriarchs and our elders and our clan mothers Mm. instead of these elected officials that are in the pockets of someone else what makes an elder an elder is someone who's lived in the community their entire lives they know the feast hall system they are fluent in the language They know our protocols, and they respect our culture and each other. They never put themselves above anyone else. And an elder is someone of age, um, someone who's always spent their life helping garner the young ones through the feast hall system, through our cultures and protocols, through our medicines, through our language, our verbal history. Yeah, maybe we could talk about
0: some of the differences between Canadian values and traditional
2: indigenous ones. Okay. Um, So the common Canadian value that I've seen living in a colonial town, um, in a settler town, is it's all a quick dollar. You know, how quickly can I ravage this area and make the quickest amount of money in the shortest amount of time to optimize my overhead? With absolutely no forethought to how it's going to affect the previous generation. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all about quick results for the quick dollar, ignoring repercussion. Whereas indigenous people of Turtle Island, we have what we call the seventh generation philosophy. Now here within our territory, we have our five hereditary chiefs. Now the Delgamut's case, That we won against the Crown, the Queen of England, and the Federal Government of Canada back in 1998 regained us our sovereignty. Basically, stating that we, the hereditary chiefs, I am not a hereditary chief, that our hereditary chiefs that oversee our 13 clans within Witsuwitan territory, which is 33,000 square kilometers have the absolute say in what happens to and on our territories. Now, a few months ago, they signed the Memorandum of Understanding, which allows our verbal history to be admissible in the court of law. So with our seventh-generation philosophy, anything that happens to and on our land must, under federal law, go through our hereditary chief system and through the Feast Hall. And if one chief says no, or if they all say no, it's no.
0: So that's a pretty different example to Mm -hmm. what's actually been going on in light of the pipeline. And what has been reported in many media outlets Mm -hmm. about this kind of you know, false narrative of consensus and the legal rights of these resource extractors Mm -hmm. when in fact it's written into their own laws that the hereditary chiefs have final say. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But the pipeline isn't specifically what we're here to talk about Mm -hmm. today because you actually have a a different story that has to do with a different and equally terrible series of events that has been happening here and all over Canada. When did you first find out about missing and murdered indigenous women as a
2: kind of collective phenomenon? October 14th of 2017 is when I first found out. You know, you, you always see it in the news, a a new indigenous woman or person two spirited going missing and you know in the back of your mind as an indigenous person you always think this could never happen to me on October 14th of 2017 my aunt Frances Brown went missing presumed murdered that's when I first heard about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited and that's when it really really struck home how did it change you to answer that is to answer the last three years of my life i realized just how little people truly cared about us indigenous people here in canada the lack of resources to local law enforcement, to search parties and media exposures and missing posters. You know, very rarely will you see an indigenous missing poster in a settled town. You go to Smithers, which is not far from here, you won't see many. But here in Woodset, they're all over the place. Right here on the Highway 16, the infamous Highway of Tears. Maybe you could talk about some of the statistics surrounding what's going on. So right now, the national average just here in Canada and just including women and girls, not including men, not including boys, the national average for our indigenous women and girls going missing is three a day. Wow. The total since 2010 is 5,712 that we know of, that were reported and now we've lost count.
0: Do you have any theories as to A, why the police are doing such little to help, and B, why this is happening?
2: So here in the Northwest, along the 16 Highway, all of the towns, as you've seen driving up here, are very remote and secluded there aren't that many jobs here on my reserve I was very very blessed and lucky to have a job here on my reserve for us to be able to work and provide basic necessities for our families and be able to afford basic necessities for our families we have to travel for work with the vast amount of poverty that we have here within our community there aren't that many people that can afford a vehicle. Mm. Hitchhiking is one of our main modes of transportation. We have the BC bus, which stops in Smithers, but misses all the reserves out here. We now have a bus that goes from here to Smithers, thankfully, twice a day. The BC bus, once a week. Mm -hmm. It's not conducive to a full-time job, especially if you have to commute not to mention our northern communities that have little to no access to groceries, basic medical supplies, potable water.
0: And why do you think the police are so reluctant to spend resources investigating these?
2: Without going into conspiracy theories. We could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um you know the sex trade here in Canada is vast yeah. Um, and there are a lot of people that if you were to explore those sex trades and who was involved you would have a lot of hands in the pockets including politicians possibly law enforcement yeah those people meant to protect us are the ones responsible in some cases not all, not all police are bad not all politicians want to steal you or your children, or your wife. It only takes a few, though. Mm -hmm.
0: So can you tell me what happened in the immediate, sorry, in the immediate aftermath of your aunt disappearing?
2: So since my aunt disappeared on June 1st, 2018, I decided to take it upon myself to walk across Canada solo, from Victoria, British Columbia to Cape Spear, Newfoundland, which is a total of 8,275 kilometers, to help raise awareness for the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, and to memorialize my aunt, Frances Brown, my cousin, Jessica Patrick, whom was found murdered at the Smitherski Hill, and all of our missing and murdered across Turtle Island. In the time since I've been writing a book about my journey, the amount of communities that I've visited, just indigenous communities, is 64. Sixty-three of which have more than one family member missing, some missing since the nineties, with no word. with no information brought forward despite vast amounts of money being put up by the families or communities or both for any information Did you play around with any other ideas aside
0: from a walk? Or Yeah yeah.
2: Um, so with conjunction of The Walk which is The Walk to Remember on Facebook I've been writing and I'm almost finished writing a book under the same name The Walk to Remember Once it is safe for me to travel to and within other communities and all across Canada, I'll be biking across Canada from Haida Gwaii, British Columbia to Cape Spear, Newfoundland. There's going to be a markup value on this book. And 100% penny for penny of all of the proceeds are going to Indigenous communities with missing family members. While I do this, I'll be doing book launches all across Canada and filming a documentary on what it means to be indigenous and what that looks like
0: so before you left on the walk how did people here in Witset and your family members feel about you doing that
2: you know there were mixed feelings Um, some family members didn't want the exposure to our family member, but I went to my grandmother, her mom, Mm. and asked her permission, and I asked the siblings permission. And when they gave their consent, I went about our journey, not mine, our journey to raise this awareness. And the level of support that I've had, not only from my family, but my community, and many other communities, complete strangers to me. The level of support I've had is unparamount and a true blessing. And how did you prepare for the
0: walk leading up to (laughs) it? Did you have much experience doing long backpacking treks or anything like that?
2: Prior to the walk, you know, I did two and a half months of body conditioning, which was running 30 kilometers every other day. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of camping, backpacking, and stuff like that, but never more than a few weeks. And when you go into something like this, a cross-Canada journey, you realize very quickly on that it doesn't matter how much you prepare, you've never prepared enough. So having that constant support all along the way was paramount. Yeah. Did you do lots of running and stuff before you left? I yeah. imagine. Yeah, thirty kilometers every other day.
0: Did you have weight? Did you, yes. Yeah. Yeah. How, I went how heavy.
2: Fifty pounds. Wow. Thirty kilometers with fifty pounds on my back every other day. Jeez. I just did the Juan de Fuca with fifty pounds. Mm. <laughs>
0: we weren't running. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. And that was forty-seven kilometers over five days. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> got me there. Yeah. Um. So, obviously, for a journey of this kind of undertaking, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of support and a lot of equipment. Yeah. So, before leaving, you had some experiences dealing with equipment sponsors, particularly mm-hmm. with someone from New Balance. Yeah. And maybe we could talk about a few of those experiences.
2: Sure. Um, so, I was sponsored along the walk with well, by New Balance Victoria, specifically Rob Reed. Now, I had no idea of his history within this country and whom he spent that history with. Yeah. So Rob Reed himself, back in the 80s, worked with Terry Fox on his run across Canada. Unfortunately, of course, Terry Fox didn't make it the whole way. But, uh, so Rob Reed owns New Balance Victoria. And as soon as I came into the store, I talked to Rob Lowe uh, and... Or Rob Reed, sorry. And uh, he was absolutely overjoyed to hear about my journey. And uh, he sponsored me with 11 pairs of shoes, the New Balance 880s, throughout my entire journey. Now, the reason he could do that was... He's one of many store owners from across Canada that are part of the Front Runners. They're all independently owned shoe companies from across the country. And anytime I needed a new pair of shoes, I would reach out to Rob, and he would call up the nearest shoe company, and they would have a pair waiting for me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, just the fact that you happen to walk into the store of the very guy who helped Terry Fox way back in the eighties. Yeah. So the chances of that person even still working yeah. were pretty low. <laughs> yeah. So he must have been, I'm imagining, pretty excited to get to relive a part of that feeling from such an iconic, you know, moment in his life.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And a huge thanks goes out to them. And I still do have the last pair of shoes that I got in Halifax. That I have worn for over 3,000 kilometers of travel with a shoe that's only rated for 500 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So that pays testament to their build quality for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they weren't the only company to assist me on the journey. Uh, another company was the Happy Yak, based out of Montreal. Uh, Christine Chenard, uh, she helped supply me with her dehydrated foods. Um, As well, Patagonia Calgary, Patagonia Victoria, and Patagonia Korea, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the Camper's Village in Calgary. So, the way I got in with Patagonia Korea, I can imagine all the eyebrows up right now. How did Korea hear about you? Within my social media presence, I would tag anybody who had sponsored me in some sort of way, whether it was a free piece of merch... And in this case, it was Patagonia, Calgary that I was tagging in a post. And the photograph had been searched by Patagonia, Korea. And they approached me through my Instagram page and asked me if it was okay that they take my photograph and run it as an ad for their products in Korea. And in exchange, they would give me any piece of clothing that I needed or wanted and given that I had a full range of whatever I wanted, yeah. um, I decided to take the conservative method and take only what I needed and what I could carry. That's the big one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How heavy was your pack? 84 pounds. 84 pounds. Yeah. And so I'm sure not all listeners are avid backpackers, but that is quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And considering that at the time, Within the journey, I was only about 180 pounds consistently. You know, having almost one half of my body weight on my back. The average 10-year-old child on my back walking 55 to 65 kilometers a day with a caloric necessity of 8 to 10,000 calories, needing to eat 8 or 7 to 8 meals a day while snacking in between meals just to keep moving.
0: That's a lot of happy yak. It is. Yeah. (laughs) And
2: I felt like that yak. And I was very happy with that food. That's good. That's great. Um, So do
0: you remember what the first few days felt like when you were setting out?
2: Yeah. I started in Victoria, British Columbia um, at what they call Mile Zero, which is right downtown Victoria. And uh, I started north going up towards Nanaimo. And those first few days were absolutely arduous. You know, my pack was so heavy. Everything, every muscle hurt. But it wasn't without its blessings. My first stop was Goldstream Park, which isn't that far. I needed to make sure that my body could handle the weight. And the ups and downs, literally. Literally. I stopped in Goldstream Park, and I'd done a work for a stay at the Ocean Island Inn, which is a, ho- a hostel in Victoria, and I'd met quite a few um, people from overseas. And I'd made really good friends with two young German fellows who had done some camping in Goldstream Park. So they had told me that they had camped there, so I figured, well, if they can camp here, I can find it too. I passed the trestle bridge, couldn't find the campsite. So I'm standing there, waiting for reception, walking around trying to find some, and I hear this crashing in the bushes. And these four guys, big, burly men of all ages between late 30s and early 70s, come out of the bush with monster packs on. Mm. And at this point, I didn't have my pack on. I just had a bunch of MEC gear on, and it was all brand new, so. You look like
0: the new guy. I did. <laughs>
2: And I asked them, I'm like, so are you guys going to be camping here tonight? And they looked me up and down and said, no. And I'm like, don't worry, guys, I'm not park services. Like, oh, well, in that case, yeah, right <laughs> up the top of the mountain here. I'm like, do you guys have a place picked out? And they're like, yeah, we actually do. Do you have room for one more? Like, yeah, come on. Nice. Now, unbeknownst to me, this group, were a men's group that... Uh, they and many others across the country put together to help men deal with complex emotions and trauma. And, you know, be that, you know, job promotions, being fired, divorce, addiction, depression, anxiety, any issues that any person has, this men's group is there. Say your mother dies and you want to cry, but you don't want to cry amongst your friends you call any one of these men of the group and as soon as you call they answer and they're just there to give you space and that was my first day out on the road yeah do you remember what that group is called team
0: dynamite nice yeah so it still sounds real tough yeah Oh, guys, I'm just going to call Team Dynamite real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And such a a blessing to meet a great group doing their own sort of special journey. Mm -hmm. Very fortunate to encounter them on the Mm -hmm. very first day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What route did you take through BC?
2: Through British Columbia. Um, Well, after I had finished the island, I had gone from Victoria up to Tofino, and I spent 10 days in Tofino. Then I went back to Nanaimo, took the ferry over to Vancouver. And then I went from there through Chilliwack and took the 97 North. And instead of continuing straight on the North on the 97, I took the 97 C, which goes through uh, Hope, uh, Kamloops and Kelowna, and then connects back to the 97 up to the 16. Once I reached Prince George, 20 kilometers outside of, my grandmother, my late grandmother, Irene Zeep Brown, and my Auntie Pyle, they met us at the five kilometer mark into town and they actually walked with us into Prince George. We only had one escort police car, so we could only do you know, four people out at once, um, but they all took turns coming out to walk next to us. And they all made the joke that they had to run to keep up because of our long legs. Yeah. Um, At the time, I was walking with a a young man that I met from Scotland, a young budding photographer.
0: And why did you take the highway as opposed to something like the Trans-Canada Trail?
2: So, a lot of what I am doing and was doing was exposure-based. So, within the main veins, i.e. highways, there's the most exposure and most access to resupply which was a huge factor. And the more communities you can go through, the more opportunities you have to meet people, tell them what you're doing, why you're doing it, and it's those opportunities for education. Did you have any close calls walking along the highway? Both vehicles and wildlife, actually. Um, The 16 Highway is notorious for logging trucks, never giving an inch. Snow plows were a big issue, uh, especially in eastern Ontario. Um, I was chased by a bear uh, just east of Prince George, just past the ancient forest. When I was at the Saskatchewan crossing, I had a mountain lion run in behind me. Uh, there is was uh, a man driving his car and he swerves in front of me. And my first thought was, oh, you dick. And then he flings open his door and he says, get in the car. Like, "Uh, no, I'm okay. (laughs) And then he's like, no, get in the car. And you could see the fear growing in his face and he's looking behind me. So I'm like, I need to get in the car. And I rip off my pack and I run to the car. And as I'm getting into the car and about to close the door, the door slams shut. Mm. And I look out and there's a mountain lion right there at the door. Fuck. Yeah.
0: So, a lot of animal encounters, it sounds like. Canada's a very wild country. It is. Not too unexpected. Mm -hmm. But were there any times you encountered any extreme weather? The mountains in BC can be pretty unpredictable.
2: Yes, it's very unpredictable and very unforgiving. Um, I was just past Mount Terry Fox when I got hit by a summit storm that came on within seconds. You know, it was clear skies and then cloud. And then, thunder, lightning, torrential downpour, and then hailstones the size of golf balls. I had to throw my pack on my head and run to the trees for cover. You're lucky you have such a big pack. In I that, you know, am. In <laughs> <sense>. <laughs> I definitely am, but holding 85 pounds above your head is not an easy feat. Yeah. And crouching with 85 pounds above your head is not easy either. And holding it there for 45 minutes while you wait out the storm... Was terrible, but uh, you know, there's no such thing as bad weather, just poor choice in clothing,
0: yes, indeed. So the storm did pass, though, you didn't have to mm. shelter in place, no, too much.
2: no, just for the 45 minutes, yeah, thankfully,
0: yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good, yeah, because they can get pretty bad, yeah, overnight, either. yeah. Any favorite places that you got to travel through that stick out?
2: depending if you talk about people or locations or spectacle of view I mean the answer differs for all, but all encompassing I'd have to say Tobik First Nations in New Brunswick Mm -hmm. is pretty high up there you know, if not the highest you know, the reception here in Whitset is the highest bar none you know, being welcomed back and having a welcome home ceremony here within our feast hall was just absolutely incredible. And I need to thank my community of Morristown, Whitset, and all of my community members for all of the support, all of the love, all of the prayers. You know, not just the well wishes, but the monetary donations that all of my family has been sending You know, you guys kept me in from the rainy days, and you guys kept me alive. So, Masai, thank you very much.
0: So, throughout the journey, we've sort of talked about exposure, Mm -hmm. and obviously you were reaching out to media Mm -hmm. along the way throughout the country. Um, Can you tell me what your experience dealing with the media generally was Mm -hmm. like?
2: Yeah, um... It was 850 kilometers before any sort of media outlet wanted to take on my story, our story, and give that media exposure. I've had a lot of, I do a lot of dry calls. You know, hey, I'm in this community. You know, I'm in your neck of the woods. Do you have a van that wants to come out and cover this story? this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm about, this is why I'm doing it, this is what it means to me. Seven times out of ten, the media said, no, we're not interested. No, we, we've we done too many stories like that, it would be too negative right now. Come back in a couple of weeks. Come back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, that isn't happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but overall, I mean... Everything happens as it must. You know, I've been in places that I never planned to be, but it was always meant to be. And giving up that false sense of control, you know, that false sense of this is what's going to happen. You know, you set a plan, but that's not what's going to happen. And being okay with that. And just. Being stranded somewhere and instead of saying oh this is terrible now I've got to spend more money to stay here, I went into it with the mindset of okay who am I supposed to meet? Who am I supposed to connect with here? Who did I miss? And then every interaction from that point on was with the mindset that I'm meant to meet this person. This person is the reason I was held up from my preconceived plans.
0: I think having that mentality just for anyone when they're traveling generally Mm -hmm. to be open to the experience Mm -hmm. will cause you to have that experience. Mm -hmm. It's like they say don't tense up in a car crash, Mm -hmm. it's kind of the same thing I think. Um, So we just talked about your interactions with the media. What about politicians Hmm. that you reached out to?
2: I've reached out to a lot of MPs, um, premiers, prime minister, (coughs) and uh, (laughs) none of them wanted to show face.
0: Not a single one? Not a
2: single one across the entire country wanted to be a part of what I had to offer or show.
0: You'd think that this wouldn't be a controversial issue Mm -hmm. that we should find missing people yes that shouldn't be an issue that a politician doesn't want to get close to Mm -hmm. but apparently it is yeah so i think canada should probably give its head a shake absolutely (laughs) yeah um how did that contrast your lived experience with like average people that you met on the road
2: Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's night and day. The level of support, love, and care that I've received from complete and utter strangers, bar none, is the most amazing experience I could have had. You know, when I stopped and wintered in Huntsville, Ontario, where I grew up and stayed with my family, when I left Huntsville, Ontario, April 15th of 2019... I had 14 days of food, which was enough to get me from Huntsville to Montreal. When I reached Montreal, I had 13 days of food. Now, the only reason I had 13 days of food was because the first night I stayed at a hostel, the Wolf Den hostel, just west of Westgate of Algonquin Park in Ontario. As I just opened my meal and had it cooking, I got a phone call from a, a family that I met at a diner. And they asked, would you like a home-cooked meal brought out to you? I'm 50 kilometers away. They were going to drive that meal 50 kilometers just to bring it to me and 50 kilometers to get home. When I reached Montreal, I had 13 days of food. When I reached Cape Spear, Newfoundland, 2,678 kilometers away, I still had 13 days of food. I <laughs> Need I say more, the level of support and love and care in this country is incredible. Why do we hide that?
0: And why do we hire politicians who don't reflect that? Mm -hmm. That's a good question as well. Mm -hmm. At one point during your live streams, Mm -hmm. which you were doing a lot, doing live streams on Facebook, uh, you mentioned that your backpack was home. Yes. Yes. What were some of the most important items you had in that backpack? Personal, um, logistical,
2: anything, Mm -hmm. really. The most important thing that any person can have, there's a list of probably five or six things. Toilet paper, dry socks, rain gear, three sources of fire, and your home, your tent. If you have all of those things, you can survive anywhere.
0: What about sentimental items? You met Um, a lot of people along the road, and I know people like to give little
2: little gifts and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So, So, I mean, anybody who follows even poorly my Facebook page or my Instagram will see that there's a little miniature Matthew, uh, which was a, a gift from a girl that I met in Medicine Hat when I spoke at the Medicine Hat College as I was going through she had crocheted a little miniature Matthew that had his own little photo debut. And people just loved him, so I just took pictures of him. Like, I'm tired of selfies here. (laughs) It's close enough to a selfie. Here you go. And, uh, you know, I've been, and on the more serious side of things, you know, I've been gifted a a medicine pouch that was held by a now-deceased elder. And the daughter of this elder gifted it to me Knowing that her father, her late father, would have wanted to be there with me every step of the way. So she gave me the medicine pouch that he carried through ceremony. I have a prayer ribbon that was gifted to me when I was in blood, uh, the Blood Tribe territories, uh, just east of Regina. Um, you know, I have... The picture of my aunt Frances Brown on my pack, which recently I gifted to her son uh, Darren Brown, um, and she was with me every step of the way. You know, I've been gifted eagles' feathers that aren't mine, but I'm just the steward, the caretaker of you know the the sentimentality of everything that is and on that home. Is just so sacred to me.
0: What was the hardest part of the journey?
2: You know, I get asked this quite a few times. And, you know, there are so many aspects of this journey that were difficult. You know, sometimes it was just walking in the right direction. Or setting up my tent at night. You know, I I did a... When I do live... uh, presentations, especially with youth groups, um, I would tell complete strangers to go through my pack, set up my tent, get my food, and get everything going, and then throw them a curveball and say, well, it just started a torrential downpour. Get your rain gear on, my rain gear. And they have to navigate my entire pack. They have to teach themselves how to set up my tent. They have to find everything. The exhaustion of walking 55 to 65 kilometers with a 10-year-old child on your back in all manner of weather.
0: That's how much you were doing a day? Yes. How much? Could you say that again?
2: 55 to 65 kilometers a day.
0: With 85 pounds. Yes. Yes.
2: In torrential downpour, in sideways rain, upside-down rain, snow, in all manner of weather. And by the end of day, just setting up camp, was the hardest thing, because exhaustion sets in. Some days it's just waking up in the morning, like, damn it, I have to do this again.
0: Did you have a very set time that you woke up every day? Were you very regimented with it? I was,
2: and you have to be. You have to have that regimentation with everything that you do. Um, You know, I had all seven meals planned out for that day. You know, at 6 o'clock, I wake up in the morning. 7 o'clock, my tent is packed. 8 o'clock, I'm on the road. 8.30, I'm having my first meal. Well, oh, second.
0: Yeah. <laughs> second breakfast. Yes, <Yeah>. second breakfast. <laughs> I <live with> these. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And, you know, I had to structure it every single day, and it had to be the same every single day, mm-hmm. except for laundry day, because laundry day is lounge day. Mm,
0: okay so Mm -hmm. one day out of the week you mean you got to stay in place
2: yeah and the only way that timetable ever changed was if I had to be somewhere for a presentation or to meet an elder and then I would push even harder the most I walked in a single day in a single 24-hour period was 142 kilometers 10 out of 10 do not recommend.
0: Yeah. How long did that, how long was that day?
2: That day was a 20 hour day.
0: Yep. Big day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when I got there, I was the walking dead.
0: Yeah. I hope yeah. you didn't have to
2: speak that m- night. <laughs> <laughs> no, the next morning. Oh, oh, even yeah. better. <laughs> <laughs> On three hours of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez.
0: Yeah. All right. So you were walking at night then, I guess. I was that time, yes. Yeah.
2: There were sections of the Okanagan Valley that I opted to walk at night, um, just for overall safety.
0: What about heat? You know, did you ever? That's why I walked at night in the Okanagan Valley because it was in the middle
2: of summer of 2018, which was exceptionally hot—42 degrees with 70% humidity. So it was like hell on earth with a 10-pound child.
0: I I know fruit pickers in the Okanagan Mm -hmm. do the same thing with night vision goggles. Yeah must look kind of terrifying (laughs) (laughs) yeah so going through all these small towns in Canada Mm -hmm. raising awareness about this specific issue Mm -hmm. did you
2: encounter any resistance or racism Mm -hmm. I most certainly did Um, because of my outward appearance I always got the question so why do you care why are you walking for the Indians and then I have to pause them right there and say, well, that's because I am one. And within their disbelief, I show them my status card. And they're like, oh, well, you don't look like one. Like like one what? A, a human being? Somebody of difference to you? And, you know, that level of ignorance is my opportunity for education. Um, when I was leaving Regina, Saskatchewan. I was within a establishment, which will remain nameless. Sure. Um, Ordering a coffee. Those are the only hints you get. And uh, as I mentioned previous to the sentimentality of things that I carried with me on my home, my pack, a picture of my aunt, Frances Brown, these three young boys, non-native, came into this establishment, and they saw this picture of my aunt. Now, these three young boys, mid-twenties, thought it would be hilarious to rip off my auntie's picture and throw it on the ground. So that's what they did. They took the picture of my aunt, Frances Brown. They ripped it off my pack and they threw it on the ground. And said, who's this dirty fucking squaw? Now, I have so little restraint when it comes to scenarios like that. And I was definitely being tested. I could have yelled and swore and cursed at these young men for this heinous act of complete ignorance and racism. But that would only enforce their behavior and embolden them to escalate. I could have skipped step one and gone straight to step two and beat the living daylights out of them, yep. but that would let everyone else in the establishment know that these young men were right. I am just a dirty squaw. I have no right to be here. But instead, I picked it up and I showed it to them. You see this? This is my aunt, Frances Brown. Missing October 14th, 2017, at the age of 53. Presumed dead. Murdered. We still have no leads. Next time, please, show more respect. And I started crying. And you know when you're running through the forest? Trees are going by you. Everything's a blur except where you're looking. That's how this entire scenario played out. The entire establishment disappeared and it was just my focus these three young men until I heard now my first knee-jerk reaction in the back of my mind was who the hell is applauding these young little shits and I turned around getting ready to give the nastiest look and I see this elderly couple and they're looking at me and my heart just sunk they weren't applauding the little shits They were applauding me for how I handled the situation. And their strength, they were non-native. Their strength let everyone else know that it was okay to stand up to these young men, this dissonance, and everyone started applauding. And these once very proud, ignorant young men went from giants to infants. And in a non-violent, non-confrontational way, We all showed those young men that they were wrong and that they should reevaluate how they treat other people. The power of one, the power of the individual, so often overlooked. And that level of
0: restraint is powerful. Do you feel that overall culturally, because this experience must have reminded you of growing up in Huntsville Mm -hmm. and been unfortunately reminiscent of some of the times there, but that was a long time ago, Mm -hmm. do you feel like
2: winds are changing? Winds are definitely changing you know our our young people are asking questions never thought to be asked by my generation or the ones previous you know they want to know the dirty answer they want to see the dirty laundry you know we're in a time of such amazing change and i am so proud to see our young ones have the courage to be asking these difficult questions and wanting to hear not just listen to but hear the answer and do something about it you know when i was growing up in the 90s our level acceptance stopped at homosexuality trans non-binary you know none of that was accepted homosexuality was the limit you know, we've gone from Gay Pride Week to Gay Pride Month. And I am so happy about that. Because soon, it's just going to be Gay Pride. Year round, baby. Year round. Yeah. For the rest of your life. for Until the end of time memorial, Be who you are. Yeah. And that's okay. That's where we're heading. But it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of learning. And not just from non-Indigenous We as indigenous people have to adapt as well. We have the eagle people, the indigenous. We have the condor people, the non. And we have to fly together in the sky for this great change to come about and make this a living prophecy and not just beautiful words on a piece of paper. I think in
0: so many of our conversations we've had over this weekend, it's increasingly apparent that the systems in which we're all living under in the West and all over the world, really Mm -hmm. capitalism and relentless resource extraction, not only shouldn't go on, but can't Mm -hmm. like it's physically impossible in terms Mm -hmm. of the carrying capacity, agriculture, any front you could name Mm -hmm. basically. And I think it's a really beautiful thing that these communities that you're a part of Mm -hmm. have a real opportunity to take center stage in showing people alternative ways of existing Mm -hmm. in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. Hypothetically, what would that look like?
2: I I sort of touched on the idea of, but never really explained earlier, the seventh generation philosophy. So I'll take the time now to explain that. Now, our seventh generation philosophy is we as the stewards of our Mother Earth, we as the inhabitants of our Mother Earth, are the caretakers. Anything we do to our Mother Earth, anything that happens on account of our infrastructure our needs anything that we extract from our mother how is that going to affect seven generations from now are they still going to have the same level of fish population you know we talked about this earlier this weekend the the bug population how in the 90s you'd go on a road trip with your family and at every gas bar you'd have to get out and scrape off your windshield because of all of the bugs. Now with all of the pesticides being used in farms and agriculture, that population, the key source of our pollination outside of bees, where are they? They're not here anymore. And it's not like the
0: bees are doing really well no. either. No. And it's funny because by having these standards and goalposts move, Mm -hmm. kids growing up now might not even know what's missing Mm -hmm. because they never grew up with it. Yeah, And so that is an exceptionally dangerous Mm -hmm. aspect of the kind of slow moving nature of climate change Mm -hmm. and other ecological crises. Yeah, I guess to get back to the story of your trip
2: Mm. what was the longest you were alone Hmm. the longest I was fully alone um, was just over a month and a half Um, that was a very difficult time Um, if anybody's ever you know what was that game back in the 70s, 80s and 90s uh, where you get locked in a closet with a girl or boy, or oh, seven minutes in heaven. <laughs> yeah. yeah, imagine that, but not being able to leave, ever. Yeah, um, that's what it's like in your own mind um, over extended periods of time, sort of a self-induced um, solitary confinement. Uh, so your your mind goes to definite weird places. Um, so. And it really makes you confront those darker parts of yourself that you put in the back burner that you're unwilling to or not equipped to deal with. You know, be that a childhood trauma, be that a, you know, a a fear, an anxiety, you know, something that makes you depressed. There's nowhere for it to hide. It's out in the forefront. You're looking at it every single day. Now, you can either... Grow from that experience, or you can crumble from that experience. But whatever we don't change, we choose. And those moments of almost complete distance from a perceived reality or social structure, you definitely realize the values. Um, of interaction and what we benefit as a species from that interaction Um, different points of view different ways of tackling the similar problem you know, we, we spoke earlier last night about the benefits of psychiatry and seeing a psychiatrist and how its stigma, its stereotype is angled in such a way that it's to deal with something that's wrong with negative connotations, whereas in reality it's to deal with minute, small, and major personal, personalized obstacles that we aren't fully equipped to handle alone. It's more a guidance. And not having that level of societal connection, you're really forced to try to find and navigate those streams on your own. So the level of growth interpersonally that you can get from those experiences can be incredibly beneficial but also at a very big cost. Yeah.
0: I think that's part of the reason why things like heartbreak, the end of relationships are so difficult because we evolved in circumstances where to be rejected by your group Mm -hmm. would mean almost certain death. Mm -hmm. In hunter-gatherer societies, Mm -hmm. very rarely would there be individuals who were able to survive on their own Mm -hmm. long term. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why we have that aversion to isolation Mm -hmm. because of the way we evolved and just those feelings and those understandings are still with us Mm -hmm. even if we instead of living in a small band of 30 people Mm -hmm. live in cities of 3 million Mm -hmm. we haven't really rewired that software Mm -hmm. nor should we Mm -hmm. I think a big part of the the problems in society is that of abstraction. Mm-hmm. We're used to being and evolved to be in communities where we take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. There's nothing natural about walking next to a homeless person and seeing a fellow human being freezing to death on mm-hmm. the street. Mm-hmm. Yet people who live in cities have to get used to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that abstraction of other human beings is a huge part of all the problems that we're seeing Mm -hmm. and something that we're going to have to contend with one day you mentioned during one of your live streams that you've inherited some of your dad's coping mechanisms (laughs) what did you mean exactly by that
2: So my father and I, we are near identical, despite wanting to admit that, um, (laughs) you know, we look alike, we sound alike, we have the same mannerisms, we react to situations in the same way, we're both very quick to judgment, despite our best intentions. Um and despite knowing better at times you know I I've I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else you know walking down a street seeing a homeless person and as soon as I see them avert my eyes as if I hadn't seen them at all and just continue about my day because I don't want to part with that 2 dollars in my pocket or Tell them, no, sorry, I don't have any change. And, you know, this whole issue with homelessness, personally, I feel it should be renamed houselessness. A home is an abstract idea. A house is what they need. And to have this mentality that we're so far away from homelessness is so wrong in so many ways, we are a singular decision away from being houselessness, than we realize, or choose to ignore the fact. And to think that these individuals, these human beings, are there by choice, is complete and utter ignorance. And a false sense of self-importance that we are so far beyond them we're not we are them just not yet yeah i
0: think we have and we discussed this a little bit last night Mm -hmm. um just this rampant individualism that's present in our society and what a lot of successful people don't take into account is all of the help they had along the way Mm -hmm. with things that they absolutely take for granted. Mm -hmm. Something as simple as having your parents be together, Mm -hmm. having exposure to the business-owning class so you know how to relate to those people, to have those conversations, Mm -hmm. to get jobs. Mm -hmm. Those experiences are not universal. Mm -hmm. And just because you've had those doesn't mean that you are somehow better, or have been able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, as it were. Some people weren't even given boots Mm -hmm. to begin with. And you you, you touched on something really interesting last night about how, because it's being increasingly shown, there's multiple studies about Mm -hmm. this, that it's actually much cheaper to house the homeless Mm -hmm. than to leave them outdoors. Yes. So why are they homeless (laughs) as an example to keep the blue collar workers going into work Mm -hmm. to for them to realize that if you fall, no one is going to be there to catch you Mm -hmm. unless you're rich, unless you have a family who have room for you. Mm -hmm. Another one of those advantages we're talking about. And, yeah, you put it very well last night, mm. so I just wanted to voice that. Mm. Um, obviously, traveling through Canada mm. on this journey that you've been taking, uh, you've ended up in a lot of indigenous circles. Yes. Are there any organizations or projects, uh, aside from your own, that you think people should know
2: about? Oh, my goodness, so many. Onwa. Um, Onwa. Ontario Native Women's Association. Incredible organization. They, you know, they're forward-thinking, uh, run and operated by women, for women, um, safe shelters. Um, the men's group in North Sydney, helping to heal men from their own personal trauma and intergenerational trauma, being that support network, healing that trauma so that all community can benefit. Nwe Jinan. You know, the, the music group that I introduced you to oh, yeah. is absolutely incredible. Music producers going nationwide to indigenous communities, you know, getting them to write their own lyrics, picking them from a hat, going to their community, featuring them in their music videos. It's just incredible. Um, you know, Thunderstone Pictures in Thunder Bay. You know, such incredible organizations all over the territories. You know, it, it, I've met too many to name. Yeah. Well, I'll be sure to grab a list of those
0: websites mm-hmm. or contact forms and we'll leave mm-hmm. them on the landing page yeah. for this episode at eastfandaelsewhere.com. How do you view your role within the sort of greater ecosystem of indigenous resistance?
2: Okay. Um, well, given my outward appearance and my indigeneity, you know, it's I've been tasked by creator and through the prayers of my ancestors and those living ancestors that I have in my family to be the bridge between indigenous and non-indigenous and really help to try to break down those systemic barriers between, you know, giving and educating both sides in an equal manner on equal footing to really work together to find these long-lasting solutions to better all our lives and sustainability for futures to come.
0: And how can people help you do that?
2: You can help me by helping yourself. You know, I'm but one avenue of education. And What I have, my lived experiences, are but one of tens of thousands, if not millions of avenues that anyone could take. You can go to your nearest reserve and request to speak to an elder. You know, offering that tobacco, sitting, observing, mouth shut, eyes open. You know, the biggest disconnect within our society these days, I feel, is that we don't listen to hear anymore, we listen to respond. And if you don't hear someone, how can you understand them? There's been this wedge between, you know, settler society and indigenous people since time immemorial 508 years ago before first landing. You know, there's an entire people of Turtle Island that is now extinct, the Biathik, of eastern Newfoundland. You know, our population... ...of indigenous people here on Turtle Island was 38,508,000 years ago, the current population of Canada. Out of the population of Canada, including our Métis, which is a French descendant, um, 1.68 million, that's including the Métis and Innu. Of the territories, pre-first contact, we controlled 100% of the territory of North and South America... Now, every single reserve combined is less than 1%, 0.2%. And even that is under encroachment. It seems
0: unfathomable that, given how little area is still under control by indigenous people, that resource extractors and government organizations find the ability to locate and encroach on what
2: little people have left. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you feel like it's intentional?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you think about even just the treaty system, you know, 1792, that's when the first treaties were signed. The number of treaties signed was I believe 82 or 83. The number of treaties honored Just one. Now, here in Canada, we have the largest supply of fresh water in the entire world. Ontario, that houses most of the Great Lakes, most of the Great Lakes, has 77 Indigenous communities without access to clean drinking water. 11 out of those 77 have known two generations without access to clean drinking water since the 1950s in a country that has the largest supply of clean drinking water. There is something vastly wrong with that picture. Yeah. I was
0: reading in the museum that you took me to yesterday, statistics that highlighted that if the corporate tax rate was increased by half a percent, those communities could have their water needs served within Mm -hmm. a year Mm -hmm. of collecting that money. So, food for thought. Yeah, absolutely. Water for drinking. Mm -hmm. It is a basic human right. Yep. Not according to Nestle, who is in bed with a Mm -hmm. lot of individuals in -hmm. Canada Mm -hmm. taking a lot of fresh water from the Great Lakes, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So... You've always struck me as a pretty calm, centered person. Were there any times on the walk that things spun out of
2: control? Interpersonally, every single day, probably every hour. Mm. I've cried more times than I care to count. I've broken down, I've wanted to quit more times than I care to count. I've lost absolute and utter control more times than I care to count. You know, when undertaking anything of distance like this, um, physicality or emotional turmoil, because that is what it is. You know, I've met family members, fellow family members that are living next to a community where the perpetrator is known but isn't behind bars and hasn't been for years. They're just roaming free to do as they will after killing their granddaughter. Without naming names, because I don't have their permissions, I was in a community in New Brunswick where just such an occasion happened. A woman's granddaughter was brutally stabbed and murdered and left to die with their newborn twins. The culprit was her non-native boyfriend. Everyone knew, the police knew, but he's never convicted. The only reason they found her body was because her babies were crying because they were hungry. And when emergency responders walked into the building, they broke into the building they saw these two twin, beautiful babies crawling in their own mother's blood. And their father, the one who murdered them, wasn't behind bars. He was in the next town. It took them three and a half years to get justice for her. When faced with such heinous acts towards humanity, towards people, towards anyone... it's incredibly difficult to sleep at night,
0: why do you think there is such a lag with investigators dealing with these issues, especially in with missing cases, mm-hmm. one can sort of understand the lack of evidence. Mm-hmm but in the case you just mentioned Mm -hmm. it seems pretty clear and everyone knows that the first person you investigate is the boyfriend or husband Mm -hmm. that's not rocket science Mm -hmm. so the fact that it took three years do you have any experience understanding what the police have to say in
2: response
0: to these kinds of questions
2: Yeah, well, statistically speaking and through experience and um, requesting audiences with RCMP and investigative detectives um, as well as officials, I've been turned away most of the time. Uh, But through my experiences and asking these same questions to other family members all across the nation, their general consensus is that all evidence that was brought forward was inadmissible or hearsay. Um, they had no way of proving it. There was, it was insubstantial enough to hold up in the court of law. Their hands were tied. The budget wasn't there. Or just, sorry. Without any cause for... Not even an excuse. Just, sorry. Yeah. Did you have any run-ins with police on your trip? Once. Yeah, once, and that was when I was in Quebec. I was on a back highway, and a local RCMP came up to me. Um, they came from behind me. Now, I head traffic. Traffic's going this way. I'm walking this way. That way, I don't surprise them. They don't surprise me. Everyone's safe, theoretically. And I'm walking along the highway, and this cop car comes up behind me. They see my pack of my aunt, they pull an illegal U-turn, they stop right in front of me, they ask me in French, what are you doing, what are you doing, why are you on the highway, I'm like, parlez-vous anglais, do you speak English, and they re-answered, what are you doing on the highway, well, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it, and I did my research, this highway I'm allowed to walk on. It's under a certain amount of kilometers. It was under 100 kilometers an hour. It wasn't a major highway. I was allowed to walk on it. He's like, Yes, you are allowed to walk on it. I, Thanks. I I, no. I I did my research and I called the Quebec Dispatchment and uh, Department of Motor Vehicles to make sure that I was allowed to walk this way. But thank you for keeping me safe. And uh, he just, like, scoffs and swerves off. Like, okay. Okay. But uh, that was the only real experience that I had with law enforcement outside of Canada Day where I saw a fully-dressed Mountie uh, holding a Tim Hortons cup. But other than that, it was, (laughs) you know. So that was in Quebec, Yes.
0: Yeah, I've only driven through Quebec once, Mm -hmm. and you can really tell how much money they spend on the arts, because their Mm -hmm. highways are shit.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they are absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um, 10 out of 10, do not walk on the highways. They are grotesque. So much garbage. They're in complete and utter disrepair. And if you're walking on the shoulder, jump off the shoulder when a car is coming by. You never know if they're going to try to swerve a pothole and hit you.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, because, yeah, my experience in Quebec was the potholes. Literally, people were swerving into the oncoming lane just to mm-hmm. avoid some truly impassable um, situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you touched on some of your experiences with, with animals mm-hmm. on uh, on the trip already, but I want to expand on that a little bit. Any any other noteworthy experience with animals? They don't have to be dangerous. Okay, well, I was
2: accidentally yeah. headbutt by a female elk... Oh. <laughs> that was interesting Yeah, um, that was in Jasper, Alberta I was staying at the Whistler's campground and uh, it was mid to late September and at that time the, uh, the elk are having their calves and at this time that's when the grizzlies in the area like to hunt their calves and over generations of interactions with humans they've realized that hey, we can have our babies in safe when we're around humans. So they've become so desensitized by people and their proximity. At any rate, I was sleeping in a hammock. Beautiful, beautiful morning. It's about five o'clock in the morning and the hammock that I was using had a nice lovely zipper on it to keep me dry and I had to use the bathroom, nature called. So I'm undoing the zipper and Unbeknownst to me, because I couldn't see it, there was a female elk sleeping right underneath me, using my waterproof hammock as cover. Yeah. So the sound of the zipper woke her up, and I fly it open, I'm leaning out, she's turning around to see what that noise was, and we bumped heads. And we just both had this stunned look, like, oh, hi there. Um... (laughs) You're really there. Okay, you you do you. I'm just going to finish peeing myself. Don't worry, it'll be warm for a minute. Yeah, and then um, i got to wash this out. Yeah. But uh, in northwestern Ontario, on a more serious note, I was stalked by timber wolves for three and a half days. The alpha would constantly poke his head out of the trees and keep an eye on me to see if I was getting more and more tired. And once... Now, wolves are opportunistic feeders, they're pack hunters, but their success rate of hunting is about 15%, despite working in a pack. So they want you to be tired, or show signs of sickness before they start to attack. So the key that I knew was to always straighten your back and shoulders, appear strong at all times, you know, really stretch out. And uh, so I'm walking along the highway, and I see this 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 wolf, massive timber wolf. Now, even at 75 meters away, he still looked big. Pops his head out, and he's looking at me, sniffing the air, looking at me. And I see him, he sees me, and I just keep walking. And this happened for about three days. On the third day, I'm crawling out of my tent that morning, and... I placed my hand down to prop myself up out of my tent. And my hand went into wolf poop. And at that moment, I knew that they were no longer patient. They were getting hungry. And they wanted me to know they're willing to get closer. So I knew I had to get inside right away. And those moments where you are at the complete mercy of nature and how it is and that you are still a part of that nature despite having four walls around you that you've built having electricity you know a gas powered car electronics all of these modern conveniences we are still a part of nature and that part of nature isn't very high on the food chain and those moments I personally love those moments I'm not an adrenaline junkie I don't thrive in Life or death situations—they're just a, a sobering reminder that nature will have its way. We need the earth; she doesn't need us.
0: Did you ever consider carrying a gun or arming yourself, or what kind? What kind of things did you have in the way of protection
2: when you were on the road? So, I never wanted to carry a gun. Um, I would be going into communities with children. I would. You know, be opening my pack, literally, to children, um, youth of the area. And I never wanted to have, um, you know, misfires or any incidents. That and the interprovincial laws change Mm. um, for carry licenses and stuff like that, concealed weapons and so on. And I didn't have time to get those licenses for safety. Um, So I used bear spray. Um, but as soon as I got to Canmore, Alberta, you have to ditch your bear spray because within the prairies, it's illegal to have bear spray, um, because, well, it's the prairies. How many bears are you really going to see in the prairies unless it's a carving? Um, so, and because bear spray can also be used against humans, um, and that had been happening a lot within the prairies, so they had laws against them. So my only means of protection was a hunting knife, which I had on my hip belt at all times. How big was it? Uh, it's only a little four inch. Okay. You know, enough yeah. to be annoying to a bear, but not enough to do anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't hurt you, but I can be annoying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and you know, it's the only size you really need in the bush um, you know, you can carve things with it. You can make things with it. You can uh, split wood with it. You know, it's it's not the size that matters.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was the only real defense that I had. That and you know the experience that I have in, in the in the bush uh, with wildlife and people de-escalation tactics and just overall being calm and never overreacting to a situation, which takes a lot of time to garner that knowledge. You know, I wasn't always as calm as I am.
0: So it's always been my experience traveling Mm -hmm. that just inherent to the nature of traveling you meet other travelers Mm -hmm. who always end up being pretty interesting people. Mm -hmm. I met you while traveling, for instance, and you were on the road a lot longer than me. Mm -hmm. So are there any people that stick out in your mind that you met along the way that you'd like to talk about?
2: Yeah, um... Well, you, of course. Thanks, Uh, yes. We we met in Montreal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so all present company excluded. Um, (laughs) I met a man in Prince George at a Tim Hortons, of all places, uh, named Jonas Dykman, a Norwegian guy. Um, He's done the Pan America solo. Uh, He's done Cycling Man. He's still doing incredible things in the ways of pushing the human limit. You know, he's just recently finished his training regiment, and he did the equivalent of 30 Ironmans in 31 days. Could you imagine doing an Ironman every day of the month for a month straight? I can't. That was his training regiment. I met him by happenstance in Prince George. What was he training for? (laughs) He well, it's a big race. He's yet to reveal it. I won't give anything away. Okay. It's thirty-one
0: Ironmans. I thought Ironmans were kind of the pinnacle of mm-hmm.
2: endurance races. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some sort so, of
0: elite high circle. Yeah. Event. So
2: he did the Pan America solo, which is from Tuktoyaktuk in the Arctic Circle all the way down to the southern tip of Argentina in ninety-six days.
0: Do you go by bike? Was he a cyclist?
2: He was a cyclist. Okay. Yeah. Um. That got him invited to Cycling Man, which is a six stage race, the first stage of which was a 1,404 kilometer bike race solo. All they provided was water uh, from Bahrain to Riyadh. And he did that in, I think it was 56 hours. Um, I met uh, an Irishman um, uh, when I was in Jasper, and I beat him down to Banff. and he was a cyclist yeah just just throwing that out there yeah so if you're seeing this irish yeah he's at the pub yeah (laughs) yeah uh so if you're seeing this sorry to my irish listeners, (laughs) that that was ignorant yeah kieran Rollinson, that's uh his name uh he's got his own youtube page and all that that was pretty fantastic of him to do so and he was also going from uh where was it it was anchorage alaska all the way down to argentina and he completed his race you know, I've met so many wonderful, beautiful travelers, and the level of informality with travelers. Like, there's no sense of boundary. You know, when you walk into society, you know, we've got all got these senses of propriety and what can and can't be talked about in a conventional or public setting. Within the traveling world, especially within the hostile world, that sense of boundary is somewhat skewed and blurred talking about bowel movements or you know this fungi that you found on your foot or you know in other unspeakable places <laughs> yeah. or what foods to avoid in this area you know don't wipe with this you know there's don't wipe with this <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know you're in a new area you don't know the foliage like, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah you know I've met some really wonderful incredible people you know I've, I've met Jeremy Dutcher A Grammy-nominated Maliseet First Nations uh, musician. Incredible human being, two-spirited, you know, absolutely phenomenal. You know, I've met so many wonderful, influential people. You know, when I was in New Brunswick in St. John, you know, I was staying at the hostel there, at the Bunkhouse Boutique Hostel in St. John, New Brunswick, and I was just exploring the city a bit, as I do in every new area that I come to visit. And on my way back to the hostel, I hear some live music. And, you know, it's just praying. It's like, oh, please be at the hostel. Please be at the hostel. And I walk closer and closer to the hostel, and it gets louder and louder. I'm like, oh, getting really excited. And I look in the window. Lo and behold, there's live music. So I walk in. I order my coffee. I go sit down. And the most beautifully haunting music and voice Comes out of this amplifier, and I'm just sitting so completely captivated and enthralled and moved by his song lyrics. Roy Taylor, yeah. his entire Whispers album. I would highly recommend it to anyone.
0: Listeners of the podcast will get to enjoy listening to this music uh, as our exit music after the episode. Mm-hmm
2: and I sat there sipping my coffee and I just started crying uh, because it just moved me so much and you know mid-set he makes eye contact with me and he sees that I'm crying at the end of his set he's like hey man so I noticed that you weren't doing so well there is everything okay and you know I explained you know what I was doing and why I was doing it what it meant to me and then I told him that the lyrics that he spoke really hit home for me especially with regards to the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in two-spirit and my personal attachment to that issue and this growing and continued pandemic across Canada and all over the world and he was just set aback now over the last you know six months I've been doing Instagram live Facebook lives and I asked Rory I'm like hey how do you feel about the idea of me reading a, a small few chapters of my book and then you playing live these two songs and any other song you want to play? like, can I be from my new album that's coming up? Absolutely. So we did a live show together and it was just absolutely beautiful. Where was it? Uh, this was on my Instagram live. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And you know, I never would have met him unless he was on tour and we wouldn't have done that unless COVID happened. Right. Cause he's a traveling musician can't travel during COVID might as well do Instagram live shows. Right. So absolutely incredible human beings all over the country from all over the world. So truly blessed. So we talked about some of your
0: favorite places earlier mm-hmm. Were there any really shit places?
2: <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact. And it rhymes with the lady part uh, oh. Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh. Ah. Yeah. yeah. I also remember you, met, you
0: mentioned uh, Manitoba or Winnipeg. Yeah, you mentioned Winnipeg. Winnipeg in one of your live streams. From Winnipeg. Yeah. You were just walking around the city talking about how much you disliked it. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. You know. So,
2: Winnipeg is a very, very rough city. It is um, much like Thunder Bay in the sense that it's so segregated, you know, it's us and them, you know, non-indigenous and indigenous, and you know, when you walk down Portage Ave in Winnipeg, Manitoba, you know, you only see the underbelly, the the addicts, um, and the common misconception with addiction is that. It's only the drug's fault and their choices, and that's not the case at all. That skewed such a narrow view is so outdated and so wrong on so many levels. Addiction isn't just a drug, and it's not just a choice. Addiction is food scarcity. It's personal trauma, intergenerational trauma. It's inaccess to basic needs, to psychiatry, to further help. To a stable household with loving parents or loving guardians. Um, Or, especially now during COVID, the home being the worst place people can be. Because they're forced to stay with their aggressors. We have a lot more addictions right now than we ever have. We have a lot more teen suicides now than we've ever had in this country. We have a lot more reported spousal abuse instances in this country than we've ever had. Reported. Reported. Nine out of ten spousal abuse is unreported. Yeah, and most aren't even taken seriously. Yeah, there's some statistic I can't
0: quite remember it off the top of my head, but it's to do with police domestic violence. Mm -hmm. It's something like in I believe this is a statistic coming out of the United States, but it's something like almost half of homes with male police officers, families experience domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. We don't have to get sucked into that mm-hmm. sort of
2: direction. So how long did the entire trip take? Just over one year, I left June 1st, 2018, and arrived in Cape Spear, Newfoundland, including my stay in Huntsville, Ontario for the winter from December 15th to April 15th. I arrived in Cape Spear, Newfoundland June 25th, 2019. So, just a little under a year, over a year's time, but under a year of actual walking. What was it like reaching the end? You never really do reach the end in something like this, especially one so close to home. When I reached Cape Spear, Newfoundland, you know, I had an amazing cheer squad. You know, um, Jerry Windsor, if I'm going to be tagging you in this, my Newfoundland St. John's dad, um, thank you for cheering me on, Lisa Windsor. Thank you for being my Newfoundland mom, and thank you for joining me on the last 14 kilometers. But when we reached Cape Spear, Newfoundland, I wasn't done. I'm not done. I will never be done. This is lifelong. Until the changes we, as a species and as a people, as members of society, as citizens of Canada, until we can all be safe, my work isn't done. My journey in this isn't done. So,
0: transitioning from walking activism to more housebound activism, let's say, <laughs> how is uh, <laughs> we have a visitor? <laughs>
1: oh yes, yes.
0: Yeah, hopefully that isn't <laughs> too uh, too much registering on the audio. But anyway, <laughs> um, how has that transition taken place within you? What's it been like going back to no longer traveling? Every day.
2: Um, yeah, That's it's been really difficult. Um, when every single decision and one small miscalculation or misstep can mean getting sick, getting an injury, you know, not reaching a destination and not being able to feed myself. When every single thing that I do, every single action I take has fantastic and terrifying repercussions going from that and reaching so many people and really connecting with so many people and living in such a way that i was always on the move everything was regimented um, and going back to so-called society you know you never really do get back to society at least not fully You know, I'm still struggling with that, even over a year later. Um, I prefer solitude. I prefer to be outside, you know, under the sky, not confined by walls. I'm in a small bedroom in my grandmother's basement, you know, and even that's too big. You know, this weekend has been an absolute blessing, being able to be back in my home again, my tent.
0: Yeah, you were pretty excited to get back yes. out on the campground, even one so close to, to where you're living. It's, yeah. n- it's not about that. It's about no.
2: out, outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that familiarity, that connection to our Mother Earth, you know, that closeness, you know, you feel the beating heart of her. You know, when we went up to the falls, you could feel the beating heart of our mother at the base of that fall. You could feel her blood pumping and it's just, and it just literally washes over you. And to be in those moments and truly present and connected, that's what it's all about. And being able to share that with others, that's what it's all about and that's what I hope to do. Yeah,
0: it's funny when I was driving through uh, Smithers for the mm-hmm. first time to come here, just looking left out of my window, you can see those ranges, mm-hmm. and my first thought was, "One day, I'm going to climb those ranges." And we did the next day. Yes, so it was <laughs> it, it was absolutely perfect. Yeah. Especially uh, enjoyed our little moment of meditation, mm-hmm. sharing some tobacco at the yeah. top near the glacier. That was stunning. Yeah, and uh, exactly what I wanted to do uh, with my our time together. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe before we end, we could talk about uh, what's going on next with your bike journey Mm -hmm. and some of the details around that and ways people could assist you with
2: that. Okay. Yeah. So as you're well accustomed to now and well versed in knowing is that my walk was just stage one. My book is stage two. The release of my book is stage four. So it's a five stage, well, technically six, but I'll get to that. (laughs) So I'll be doing book launches all across Canada, selling this book and donating 100% of those overheads to indigenous communities with missing family members. Now this book is about my upbringing in that space between the space that didn't belong to every single step of the way all 8275 kilometers of our journey across Canada to honor our missing and murdered that's what the book is about my bike ride is going to be from Haida Gwaii British Columbia to Cape Spear Newfoundland 8390 kilometers in total distance i'll be selling merchandise t-shirts jerseys stickers my book and I'll be doing free events all over Canada by donation only while I'm doing this bike ride across Canada selling my book the merchandise all the merchandise all the overheads too, will go to indigenous communities with missing family members I'll be filming a documentary on what it is to be indigenous here in Canada and what that looks like an unfiltered look at the treatment, sometimes, most times, mistreatment of indigenous people all over Canada. I'm working through the logistics with a company to bring access to clean drinking water to our remote communities, communities that have desperately needed it. I won't name them yet, but I will when the time comes. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my plan, once I'm allowed to travel to other communities and it's safe for not just me but all communities i'll be heading on that journey in the bike ride yeah are there any other sort of closing messages you would like
0: to tell people before we wrap up
2: throughout every interaction bad things are going to happen in all walks of life it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or a slumlord or have nothing bad things will happen but with every bad thing that happens in life, we're also given a choice. Like my incident within that establishment that shall still be remain unnamed, mm-hmm. I was given a choice. We are all of us given choices. Bad things are going to happen, but the longer you can sit with self and really understand who you are, where your boundaries lie, what things you can live with and without, the more you can grow, the more you can realize that you're in that perpetual state of becoming and that you will always learn and not to shit on yourself when you fall. When you can live in a space where you can heal from a trauma and know that it's okay to cry about that same trauma months later, to have the support that you need is only a question away there is so much help so much guidance out there for everyone you just have to set aside your ego and be willing to sit with yourself and be honest with yourself then you'll be able to grow in the way that you need to and if we can all do that indigenous non and everyone this world will be a much better place beautifully said i would like to thank
0: you matthew and the people of witset for your patience in answering my questions and for letting me come up here and do this and share it with our listeners i really
2: appreciate it within our culture our culture is to be shared You know, you don't need an invitation to go to a powwow. You don't need an invitation to speak with someone. All you have to do is ask. Just be like, do you mind if I sit here? Do you mind if we talk? We are an open, loving people that embrace all walks of life. It is our honor to host you. To... Use this platform as an opportunity of education to show unfiltered who we are not who we are perceived to be. All right, everybody. I
0: sincerely hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matthew Jefferson as much as I enjoyed having it. Matthew is a really special person and it was a tremendous honor. And a real milestone for this show, um, having it bring me up there, enjoying salmon from the ancestral fishing grounds. Truly mind-blowing. And yeah, if you want to learn more about Matthew, you can check out his Facebook page, which is The Walk to Remember. And you can also find him on Instagram at forever underscore becoming on the more technical side of things, I hope that the audio quality was okay for all of you. It started raining right as we were setting up to record and the fact that we were recording from a campground, we didn't really have a whole lot of options except to protect the equipment and hope that it was more atmospheric than it was annoying. And finally, one more bit of housekeeping here Longtime listeners to the show will know that I used to do this project with my friend Cody. And Cody hasn't really been involved in the show for the past year or so. He got extremely busy being a head chef at a restaurant. And, you know, he's sort of moved on to different things. But in case anyone was out there wondering, Cody is fine. We are still great friends and we wish him the best. And if you feel like wishing us the best... We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Stuff like that really helps the show reach more people, and as time goes on, I am planning on releasing episodes a lot more frequently. Starting in March, I'm planning on releasing a new episode on the last Thursday of every month, so look out for those. We got new theme music, we got a couple recordings in the bank, and we are rolling into the future. To my long-time listeners, thanks for hanging in there. I hope you'll join us for the next chapter. I am going to play you out today with a song that Matthew mentioned during the interview. This was the guy that he encountered at a hostel he was staying at. Uh, he's a live music performer, and this particular song moved Matthew to tears. In a minute, you might see why. This is Rory Talion with Gone.